In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the internationally acclaimed OGGN HSE podcast sponsored by KnowledgeVine. The leader in human performance improvement training and technologies, KnowledgeVine is committed to reducing the frequency and severity of workplace errors by helping organizations leverage technology to easily create a sustainable safety culture. KnowledgeVine, the evolution of human performance. Learn more at KnowledgeVine.com. And today my guest is... Knowledge Vine. <laughs> we're proud to uh, have them as our new sponsors, and we're proud to have them on the podcast. Today I have David Bowman, CEO of Knowledge Vine, and then another David, David Sowers, CFO of Knowledge Vine. Guys, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having us. We're yeah, happy to be here. Well, ironically, when OGG and HSE first came out, you guys were one of the first guests on the show, and you really had just started knowledge vine then right yeah that's correct and it's been a pretty good successful journey since that time right yeah we think so yes okay yeah, for oggn too you guys have uh, grown exponentially since then too. yeah just yeah. a little bit that well, we talked about it at exact, lunch we think it's that, a no small part it, to our previous episode I, I was gonna say your success due to our episode you know you so I, <laughs> <laughs> okay so as i said in the intro to the show knowledge vine is the leader in human performance improvement training and technology so this buzz phrase human performance with my role as an hse host i get to talk to a lot of hse people and I talked to someone, I didn't know I was going to do this, I'm going to do this, so I won't say his name, but if I did say his name, everybody in the oil and gas industry would recognize it, and they would also recognize the name of his company, and he's the guy who actually, he made or built their HSE program, and this is a major service company, and so I was talking to him about this, and this buzz phrase or this term, human performance, he said that they started talking about that just maybe a couple of years running up to pre-COVID and then COVID, you know, hit. And now that we're kind of post-COVID, the term is coming up again in the oil and gas industry, in the safety, human performance. First of all, where does that come from? I mean, what is that and where did it come from and what is it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, nuclear power, commercial nuclear power had a pretty massive concern in 1979, a partial meltdown of Three Mile Island. And they weren't, I think, robust enough to do an adequate job of understanding the root causes that were associated with what happened in that plant. And so the FAA got heavily involved. The FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, in the late 60s had started researching crew resource management and also understanding, you know, what's causing our accidents. And so in the 60s, to fly on an airplane was not your safest route like it is nowadays. I mean, they've reached actual Six Sigma in their flights. I mean, thousands and thousands of planes fly every day. And the only thing that may happen is they might lose your bag every now and then. But you're not going to crash. I mean, those days are over. So the FAA got heavily involved with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission when they were doing the investigation on Three Mile Island. And this word error kept coming up. Well, it was human error that caused this. And it was a person's fault that the reason the plant had these issues. And the FAA pushed back saying, you know, you got to stop saying pilot error. You got to look at the real root cause of what's going on on plane crashes. 
just like you need to do in this nuclear power plant. So 79 was an interesting year. So a couple of things that happened. Jimmy Carter just came out of the nuclear Navy. He was the president of the United States, big uh, Rickover, Admiral Rickover person, and uh, was very pro-commercial nuclear power because of how safe it was in the Navy and Navy vessels where they used it. So it was a really good idea and concept, but two major things happened in the same week that kind of gave nuclear power a black eye. One was you had this Three Mile Island issue, which no one really understood what was going on. And you had the China Syndrome movie that came out. So it put a lot of fear and terror into people thinking, oh, my gosh, this thing is just wild. What's going to happen? How's this going to go? So nuclear had a big hill to climb to get out of that. One of the things they really looked at was this concept of human performance. There's a whole story around why it was called HU at the time as opposed to HP, but I won't get into all that. Maybe another story for a different day. So human performance kind of became this thing about we got to not blame people. We got to understand from an organizational perspective what's driving and causing things we don't want, unwanted accidents or unwanted conditions, particularly tied to behavior. So what behaviors do I see that are going to start out with small things that are going to turn into big things? And how do we get ahead of that at the precursor level? So before we have a consequential error or event, we want to stop that behavior using some process or some trained behaviors for people to use. One of the main things that came out of it was the acronym SAFE, S-A-F-E, and it stood for what concerns are you going to run into while you're doing an evolution that could be a critical step. So you had to have a lot of situational awareness around what you were about to go do. You would use the SAFE model to kind of walk through what could potentially happen and what are we going to do to make sure we foresee the consequences and then have the right defenses in place before we go do any evolution that could lead to a problem. Okay, so what's the acronym SAFE stand for? Okay, so SAFE is summarize your critical step. What is the thing you're going to go do understanding fully what you're about to get into with a critical step? A critical step is something that you cannot recover from. So if you do it wrong, it's like trying to put toothpaste back in a toothpaste tube. You can't do it. Pulling a trigger on a pistol. You can't undo that. The bullet's coming out, right? So summarize that critical step anticipate error-likely situations. So if I have a cell phone that's distracting me, that's a distraction interruption trap. If I'm trying to get this done before 5 o'clock and my son's got a baseball game, I have a distraction as well or time pressure. So anticipating my error-likely situation, I need to foresee my consequences. What could go wrong? What's the worst thing that could happen if this doesn't go like I think it's going to? And then finally, evaluate my defenses. What do I have in place that I can use, like a peer check? or a second set of eyes, someone that can help me to make sure that I don't make this mistake. So summarize, anticipate, foresee, and evaluate was kind of the critical step that they wanted to really pull out in that first rendition of this thing. Now, critical step has grown a lot. There's a lot of different people that are teaching that, that are really good at that, and that makes a lot of sense to understand those critical steps, and even has gone as far as to flagging procedural steps inside of an evolution to say, this is your critical step, like pre-identifying it for you. Yeah, like you got a procedure and you're going through like a checklist and there'll be something that like an asterisk that says, here's a critical step before we take this next step. Let's all pause, make sure we've got all our defenses in place. Everybody's aware what's about to happen and what the results of that should be. So codifying this inside of your procedures is this critical step piece to make sure we're not just blowing through and getting ourselves into a situation where something bad could happen, but we're actually taking the time to pause and say, okay, can't turn back. Let's make sure this is right. If we're going to pull that trigger, we know what's downfield, what's what we're down aiming range. at, what's behind. <laughs> yeah. All these things you need to know who's in the way, who's around. We're about to pull the trigger. Here we go. Make sure everybody's on the same page. That is what he's talking about. Getting into that 
that level of nuance that we're going into our procedures and saying, these are the critical steps. These are the things we really need to work our way up to very thoughtfully and methodically, and then make sure we're lined up before we take that step. So that tool is called a pre-job brief. And a lot of times it gets interchanged with JSA and that kind of thing. But in the nuclear power industry, it was really about almost like a pre-flight checklist. So two pilots are in a cockpit, they're in there doing their checklist. And matter of fact, I thank them when I walk by the door, like, thanks for using the checklist. Because it's not human nature to slow down and stop to do that. So that whole pre-job brief idea came from the nuclear power industry, really learning from the FAA. Inside of that became this thing called human performance. Now, how do I really go do an effective pre-job brief and think about critical steps? And that's where the tools and the traps really kind of rolled out of. When I say tools, we're talking about human performance tools like self-checking, peer-checking, questioning attitude, purely defined behaviors that are standards that Dave and I would have to use inside of a nuclear power plant when we worked there together as operators. So if I'm turning a valve or about to turn a valve, I would have already had a pre-job brief. I would have a procedure in my hand. I would have a valve that's tagged and I would still have Dave come out with me to the valve to open the right valve. And you may say, oh my gosh, how can anybody operate like that? But if you think about it, that's why nuclear power plants don't melt down. That's why they are the safest place to work probably anywhere. And I think, Dave, you've got some stats on that. Yeah. The Bureau of Labor Statistics year after year after year for decades now has said that the nuclear power industry is the safest industry to work in. You go work in a nuke plant, your odds of getting hurt or not getting hurt are better than if you were working in finance or real estate or probably- You've got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding you. We would be safer inside a nuclear power plant than we are right here That's doing true. this podcast. If that were an industry. Which, by the way, everybody, we are doing this podcast from the podcast studios of ARC Specialties here in Houston, Texas. And shout out to ARC Specialties, and uh, we appreciate them letting us use their facility. None of that was to imply that we are actually unsafe right right now. Okay, yeah. Even the restaurant we ate out today. Yeah, the restaurant. By the way, this is a very nice facility. This is very nice. and, And in fact, for those of you who don't know who ARC Specialties is, they were actually on our podcast last year. I don't remember exactly when. You can look it up. But they are the leading robotics manufacturing company for oil and gas equipment and that sort of thing. Okay, so you say it used to be called HU, but then it became human performance, and so everybody just shortened it HP. Okay, Well, that's actually backwards. So yeah. in nuclear power, one of the things you're always concerned about is contamination or having dose, taking dose from radiation, right? So you have a whole group of people called health physicist HP, and they didn't want to confuse HU with HP. So HU, the first two letters of human, became human performance instead of HP. HP was already taken. It was already taken. Yeah, but there were health yeah. physicists before Three Mile Island happened. Oh, oh, okay. So when they okay. said we had this human performance process, they're like, we already have HP. It's like, All right, we'll call it HU. And so then, we called it HU. Or but- you'll see HPI, human performance improvement, or HOP, you know, human and organizational performance. You know, there's different out there. But the question we get the most is like, where did HU come from? And well, HP was already just, taken. Just, so they a, just, just HU. HU for human. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you guys have basically taken the principles and practices of HP or HU from the aviation and nuclear industries, and you've adapted it to fit other industries. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. So like I said, Dave and I, we were both in the military. We both came out of nuclear power When I moved inside of, I was in a major utility where I worked and I brought the human performance concepts out of nuclear into the oil and gas side of the utility business. So the fossil fuel generators, the transmission line organization, distribution organization, 
and taught those folks the same principles and concepts. Now, inside of a nuclear power plant, the reason that it is so, I think, safe, for one thing, is it's very heavily regulated. And so there's a lot of people watching the people do the work to make sure they don't make a mistake. So you have a large infrastructure that you don't necessarily have in a non-regulated side of a business. And, you know, when you think about how it is in a nuclear power plant vice going out on a 54-mile right-of-way on a pipeline job or a transmission utility job, you're in the middle of nowhere. And there aren't 600 people watching 100 people do this. There's nobody watching it. So you end up seeing that there's some major gaps you have to fill without that infrastructure in other organizations that don't have that kind of support. So one of my tasks was taking it out of the nuclear business and putting it into other business units inside of our utility was to try to figure out how to make that applicable to the work they were doing. And so that was probably what I would say pushed us into starting Knowledge Vine was as we got, as I got down this road and started seeing, man, this is really applicable to anybody. You know, and even looking back from when I had left the oil and gas business originally to go into the nuclear business, I was still looking back to my old days when I was in a refinery or a chemical plant thinking they could really use this because it's applicable to anybody. It's not just about the behaviors but the organizational stuff and the things that we sometimes give people to work with that's not the best. We don't give them the best training in some cases. We don't give them the understanding that there's accountability here, those kind of things. And so I saw the real benefit of how this could help in any industry with anybody that has people touching an asset that if you want to get out of the blame cycle of just blaming a person and firing them and really understanding why you're having issues and concerns, this is the way to do it because you're not asking the who. You got rid of who a long time ago. You don't really even care about the what as much as you do the why. Why do people do what they're doing? If you understand a person can't do what you're asking them to do, then you're never going to fix it by firing them and hiring somebody else that can't do it either. Or if it's not important to them, they're not going to do it because management needs to be engaged, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding the why was really the part of human performance that excited me the most. I saw a huge gap between where we were in the utility business as opposed to where our contractors were trying to do that work for that utility company and not understanding those things. So that's really where Knowledge Vine was kind of born, I think. And that's kind of how you filled in the gaps. Yes, that's right. The point he makes is important that it's one thing when you're in a nuclear power plant and everybody's inside the same protected area, the same fence. You literally got to have a badge and go through security to get there. It's very controlled. You know, it's easy to go out and see, okay, this evolution's happening. I can just go get in the elevator and, you know, go to the third floor of the turbine deck or something like that and watch these things happen and to observe it. But when you have more dynamic work areas, like we're just out in the public or we're, you know, someday we're in a swamp, other days we're next to the interstate, you really have to adjust how you engage the worker. First, you got to go find them and see what they're doing and understand the complexities of an ever-changing work environment. So it wasn't a, you know, cut and paste process to say, we're just going to do what nuclear does and go do it with the utility group or an oil and gas group. There had to be some adjustments made to understand the challenges of the worker and what we're asking the worker to do. Knowledge Vine has always been very good at doing that because as Bowman alluded to earlier, the two of us actually worked you know, using human performance in a nuclear power plant. It's not strange to us to get a peer check, you know, before we operate a valve where it may be foreign to somebody. You just seen us driving over here, you know, we're doing the GPS and, 
you know, Bowman's going, oh, we got to you know turn on Oak Street and 0.2 miles. Understand, turn on Oak Street and 0.2 miles. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. That was the chatter y'all had. It just huh? rolls out. We've got, we got a passenger with us that doesn't know anything about it. They're like, man, well, you know, what planet are you guys from? That's weird, you know. But it's not just getting it into other industries. The benefits aren't just in other industries. I mean, moving it into your personal life. I love nothing more than when I get on the phone with a bank and the person on the other end knows the phonetic alphabet. Or something, mm-hmm. or is, wait, what's your account number? You know, or what's that thing? You're giving it to them, and it's like, I know they heard me because we're going, it's one, two, three, alpha, four, bravo, Charlie, you know. Hold on, writing this down. Yeah. <laughs> and they repeat this back to you, and you know you have it correct, probably to the dismay of, you know, my wife and children. We bring this things home. You know, my wife and I filling out TurboTax. You want to make sure you get those right numbers in there. So, what's line, you know, seven alpha say on the W 2? Okay, it's one, two, three. Understand this one, two, three. You put it incorrect, you know, because nobody wants to call from the IRS. There's nothing horribly consequential about that. But when accuracy matters, you can bring these things into your personal life as well. And how the organization sets us up for success. When our, do you have a teenage daughter or grandkids that are driving or anyone? I, I got one just turned 15 last month and got her learner's permit. Well, let me share this with you. When my daughter turned 15 and got her learner's permit, you're doing the coaching and you're setting up, you're the organization, you're doing the coaching and making sure they know all the rules and they pass a test. So they get that learner's permit. So they know the rules. They know the technical aspects of it. Now they got to get the physical skills, make sure those are right. And so when you do that for a year, and my daughter got her driver's license and now she's off on her own. And with all earnestness, the first few times she left, I'm like, hey, be safe. And she's like, okay. And she probably walked out the door and she's texting her friend, no, be there soon, LOL, or whatever they do. And after a couple of times, I thought like, what am I doing? What am I telling her? Just fill in the blanks with be safe. What does that mean to her? You know, so I talked to my wife. I'm like, let's give her something specific and actionable. As us being the organization, let's set better expectations. Let's get her to understand where the ditches are, not just every option's available. So instead of saying be safe, we'd say, hey, today work on your following distance. Make sure you're staying far enough back. When you come to a stop, make sure you can see the tires in front of you. Make sure we're signaling in plenty enough time. Make sure we're looking ahead. And if we see brake lights, you know, get off the gas and brake cover. Watch your blind spot. Something specific and actionable rather than just be safe to get them to work through these things. It's the same way with an organization. If you have a bunch of workers and you say, be safe, and they go out and they get the job done, and then they come back, and we say, good job. We don't know if it's a good job. We know if it's a good result. You know, we ask you to produce 20 widgets today and they come back and they say 20 widgets are done. I don't know if it's a good job or not. They could have taken every shortcut in the book. They could be violating every safety rule there was, but got away with it. It worked out because we know how to take shortcuts and stuff. But from a human performance perspective, it's like we don't know. We don't want to be inadvertently positively reinforcing the wrong behaviors because we didn't witness it. So you go out there and you're unsafe, but you get away with it. And we come back and we say, man, good job, Russell. You're a high producer. We're going to promote you. It turns out you're probably one of the riskier people we have because we're not looking at those behavior pieces that Bowman alluded to earlier. Those small things that tend to grow into those bigger things. If you can take care of the low level stuff, those don't grow into those big accidents and injuries and events. So we're always looking at the behavior piece from a human performance standpoint. You always want to be looking at these precursor behaviors and not just reacting to accidents and injuries. And something you're talking about that I want to kind of key in here is the evolution of human performance. So in the early to mid 90s, human performance was getting kind of stagnant. And a couple of books came out, you know, James Reason, Dr. James Reason and Sidney Decker both got into the organizational side of things and talked about, you know, 95% of the reason things are happening that you don't want to have happen 
is because your organization is broken. There's things inside of your organization, we call them latent organizational weaknesses, that have people trying to work in a system that they can't work in, and that's why they're having those failures. And so when we talk about human performance, I want to be very clear that we're not just saying, hey, the worker has to be trained to be better and smarter. Well, we get that That's pushback. That's not what we're saying. Yeah, the name human performance is actually kind it's, of problematic it because is. it implies literally I had a person early on in Knowledge Vine go, I'm the human. What's wrong with my performance? I'm performing just fine. <laughs> and we're like, we're not saying anything yet, but I get where you're coming from. I get why you're thinking that. But really, there's this organizational piece that we tend to drift away from because we always want to just quick answer. So we say, who was there? When it happened, you know, that's the person to blame and we want to see discipline or something like that, rather than thinking, how did we get here? How were they allowed to make these choices? You know, so the substitution test, I guess we can talk yeah, about that yeah, sure. from a human performance standpoint. When something happens, one of the first things you ought to ask is, you know, first, is everybody safe? Is everything OK? There's been an accident or injury. But before we really start this investigation, just ask a fundamental question that is, if we took that person, the person that triggered the event, if we pulled them out and put an equally qualified person in the same situation, could they make the same choices and could they make the same mistake? So do they have the latitude to make the same kinds of choices? Nine times out of 10, Bowman's alluding to, they could. They were allowed to make those decisions. The work was structured in a way that they had that wherewithal or that latitude to make those decisions. So it's not really a person problem. It's kind of a process problem. So if we fire that person that made the mistake and put somebody equally qualified in the same situation. They'll make the same mistake. Just a matter of time. Yeah. Just give it time and they will find themselves kind of navigating the same waters and they'll end up in the same place. So you always have to look and see what helped contribute to that accident or error. Typically, the individual just triggered something. Yeah, how people say the stars aligned and that everything just lined up in a particular way that we have this accident or this injury. 90% of those are things in the organization that we could have stopped as we moved forward. But you always have to look at both the individual and the organization. When a human performance process starts to devolve, it just starts to look at the individual. You know, just hammering the individual. And we use these things like human performance tools and traps almost as a hammer to say, instead of saying, oh, this person had an accident, well, this person wasn't self-checking or they didn't get a peer check. It's like another way to hammer the person rather than looking at, okay, what were the organization's influences that led this person or helped this person to get in this situation where they may have triggered an accident you know, or injury? Or and even one of the very first principles of human performance is people are fallible and you're going to make mistakes. This is about being resilient. It's about when something does happen, when something does fail, you're resilient enough to recover from it or not have worse actions happen. And that's really what, back to the original opening segue of this whole conversation, that's what nuclear power was set out to do. They didn't want to have a cascade event that would trigger, you know, a meltdown or something totally, well, that's probably the worst thing that could happen really is a meltdown, <laughs> but there's other things that could happen too that aren't yeah. great. So, you know, you wanted to make sure that the little things were controlled and contained and you understood where those were coming from. The organization wrapped its head around it, got it fixed, and we didn't just say, well, always the thing that would come out is, in every investigation I was ever involved with you know, over the years was, well, who was it? Well, who was it doesn't matter. Well, what did they do? We already know what they did. The question is, <laughs> why did this happen? And I always used to teach it this way. I don't care why John got shot. I want to know who shot John. You know, that was always the way I said that because – not understanding why these things are happening. You know, why did John get shot? That's what I need to know more than who did it. Who did it is not going to fix anything, today's point. I mean, yeah. blaming and shaming and naming isn't the right answer. This is a story I'll share to kind of help folks understand it when we're doing a class or talking to a group. 
we'll bring this in. Somebody in the class had said, I've got kind of a case study for you. It's interesting we're talking about, is it the individual or is it the organization? They said that they had a friend that was a teacher. Seven years ago, they had changed out some doors and you know removed some doors, but there, where the door was screwed into the wall there, it left a rough edge kind of up high. The door used to be on the frame. And seven years ago, she said, man, that's somebody could cut their hand on that. We need to take that down. The organization's like, oh, noted, you know, we'll get maintenance on it. It never happened. It just kind of sat there. So it languished for seven years, what we call a latent organizational weakness. You know, this is a landmine now. This is a snake waiting in the grass to get you. So seven years later, she gets uh, lining up the kids and kind of gets tangled up a little bit and she goes to catch herself. And where do you think she put her hand? Oh, boy. Right there on that spot, had stitches. It was an OSHA recordable for the school. So whose fault is it? We'll ask that to classes and everybody wants to end up in one camp or the other. They say, well, it's the organization's fault or it's her fault. She just should have been watching where she was walking. Or if they'd have fixed that thing, she could put her hand on that spot on the door all day long and nothing would have happened. So it's that stars aligning, the Swiss cheese model, you know, the gaps and the defenses that result in this thing. And we try to get people out of the mode of we found the reason this happened and get them in a more holistic view of, yes, she needs to have eyes on path, make sure she's not tripping it with the kids, but also... We have some shared culpability in this and that we need to go fix these things that are hanging out there, these hazards, these rough edges on these doors. So this never would have happened. Most organizations, they want to find that one thing. Let's go fire who, you know, John for getting shot. Usually yeah. he's the victim and they don't look at, you know, that next thing. It's like, okay, what was the organization's culpability in this and how could we have fixed that? So it's a shared thing that we try to get people to understand is nine times out of 10, when there's an accident or an injury, you really need to be thinking, I've got to get two things out of this. It's like, what did the individual do? What was the behavior that had they done something different? Could they have prevented it? And where did we fail in allowing this to get to the point of the individual where they had to be the last line of defense? All right. Thanks, as always, to all of you for listening. We're going to stop right here, uh, pick up and conclude this conversation next week. So please join us again then. Please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or the review link in the show notes. And join us again next week for another episode of Knowledge Vines Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Knowledge Vine is your dependable partner for full service human performance and safety consulting. Knowledge Vine, error reduction that works. Discover more about Knowledge Vine by finding in the show notes our website link and other contact information, or simply reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.